All right. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll read verses 18 and 19 this morning. Hebrews 7, verses 18 and 19. There the word of Christ says this. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment, because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today through our great high priest, Jesus Christ our Lord, one who has passed through the heavens, who has sat down at your right hand. And it is through him that we draw near to you today. Lord, we thank you that you have ushered in a better hope for your people. Lord, a new covenant that is based upon your grace and that comes down to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, that you have provided for the household of God a high priest who is able to fulfill and keep the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf and who is able to pay its penalty for our sakes as well. And so all that we need, Lord, we see is found in him. Everything that we need to be reconciled to you, Lord, to be made perfect and righteous in your sight, in which we have such boldness and confidence to draw near to you. Lord, we would not entertain this if it seeing and knowing that Jesus is our high priest. So, Lord, teach us today, Lord, of these great realities. Lord, may we have a fuller and a more comprehensive understanding of our salvation. And, Lord, may we rightly divide the word of truth, seeing and understanding the relationship between the old and the new. So, Father, teach us today, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are in this passage where the apostle is really laying out the fundamental issue of the book of Hebrews. The main thing that he is addressing is the coming of Jesus as the high priest who has arisen after the order of Melchizedek, right? And what does this development, the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, the sending of the Christ from heaven, what does this mean concerning the worship of God and the life of God's people, especially in relationship to the Levitical priesthood and the entire system of worship that governed the people of Israel under the old covenant, right? What does this mean in relationship to the law of Moses, to the law of commandments contained in ordinances? And we have seen that the Levitical priesthood it could not serve as the end, right? It could not serve as the source or the means ordained by God for the perfecting of his people because that priesthood could never take away our sins. And a priesthood that cannot take away sin, a priesthood that cannot make the worshipers righteous in the sight of God cannot fulfill the role for which the priesthood was established. The perfecting of the people could not be obtained by the Levitical priesthood. And this is why there was the need of a, another high priest to arise, one after the order of Melchizedek. And this was spoken of by the prophet David in Psalm 110. He spoke of another priesthood, one different from the Levitical priesthood, a high priest who would rise, not according to the order of Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Old Testament itself predicted that a change of priesthood was coming. 
that the Levitical priesthood was always intended to be a temporary guardian until the high priest should come according to the order of Melchizedek. And when that high priest was revealed, then the Levitical priesthood would no longer be needed. It would no longer be enforced, but instead it would be ready to disappear. We have seen as well through this passage that there is a relationship, a connection between the priesthood and the law. The Levitical priesthood and the law of Moses are a package deal. They go hand in hand together. Together, It was on the basis of that priesthood that they received the law. They stand in this connection or this relationship together. They are enforced together, but they also are set aside together. So that whenever there is a change of priesthood, there is also of necessity a change of law as well. And this is why Jesus is qualified to serve as high priest, even though he's not descended from the tribe of Levi. The laws regulating the priesthood to the tribe of Levi only pertain to the worship of God under the old covenant. Only the law as delivered to Israel by Moses at Mount Sinai. The law of Moses said nothing concerning the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It did not regulate or govern his priesthood because it was bound to the Levitical and not to the priesthood of Melchizedek. In his qualifications, that is Christ, to serve as high priest according to this order did not come from a law of physical requirement, but rather through the power of an indestructible life. This is what qualifies him to serve, not as a priest according to the order of Aaron, but as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And in this way, he is the only one who is qualified to serve as high priest over the household of God, for he and he alone possesses in his own nature the power of an indestructible life. Moses did not have this power. Aaron did not have this power. None of the priests under the old covenant had the power of an indestructible life. Only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is why he is the only one who can make his people perfect. He is the only one who can grant to them eternal life. The Levitical priesthood and the law of Moses. They had a role in the accomplishment of God's purposes on the earth. Their establishment was a blessing from God to keep the people under a guardianship until the revealing of the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But once he comes, then their abolishment is an even greater blessing. For the only way that they can be abolished is when the Christ appears. This is what he's been dealing with in chapter 7, and this is what will continue today. Why it is that we should not be surprised that there is a change of priesthood and a change of law, and why it is actually to our advantage that there be such a change. So let's pick up today in Hebrews 7, 18. And there's a lot to unpack in these verses. He's dealing with very weighty, weighty issues in terms of our understanding of salvation and our understanding of the Bible and the relationship between the Old and the New Covenant. So we will be as thorough as we need to be in these things. Hebrews 7.18 says, For on the one hand, there is a setting side of a former commandment because of its weakness and its uselessness. Here in these verses, in verses 18 and 19, he's examining these two things together. On the one hand and on the other hand. On the one hand, there is the setting aside of a former commandment. On the other hand, he says in verse 19, there is the bringing in of a better hope. Right? These two things have a bearing or a relationship to one another. 
So long as the old covenant is valid, so long as the Levitical priesthood are serving at the altar, so long as the law is still in force, then Jesus cannot serve as high priest over the household of God. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 4 says, Now if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. If he were on earth, if he was confined to that system of worship and to that priesthood, he would not be a priest at all because there already are priests who have been established under the law to offer gifts according to the law. And this is why the old covenant must give way to the new covenant. The law must be set aside. The Levitical priest must be abolished in order for a better hope to be brought in. Do we want to be saved? Do we want to be justified? Do we want to be made righteous in the sight of God? Do we want our sins to be forgiven? Do we want eternal life? These things can only be accomplished through the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And as long as the law and the Levitical priesthood remain, then the better hope cannot be brought in. These things are barriers to the priesthood of Christ. They must be set aside so that he might serve as high priest over the household of faith. And when he comes, it is of necessity that these things be removed and that they be set aside. It cannot be both and. It is one or the other. You can either have the Levitical priest offering gifts and sacrifice for your sins that can never cleanse your conscience or take away your sin. Or you can have Jesus Christ as your great high priest offering gifts and sacrifice for sin that can actually cleanse your conscience, make you righteous in the sight of God, and grant to you full atonement. You can either be under the law and seek to establish righteousness through your own works, in which case you're going to perish eternally, or you can be under the promise and be declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ in which you will have eternal life. This is what he is setting before the people, before us. We have to see it in these terms, right? It is no different. The stakes are no different than what Joshua said to the people in Joshua 24, 15, when he told them there, choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve the gods on the other side of the river, the gods that your father served, or will you serve the Lord God? You must choose between the one or the other. When Christ appears, when he comes into the world, then there is the necessity of choosing between the Levitical high priest, between the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood of Christ, between the law and the promise. It is either the old covenant or it is the new covenant, but it cannot be both Jesus and Aaron. It cannot be both the law and the promise. It cannot be both the old covenant and the new covenant. They cannot be mixed together. Otherwise, both of them will be destroyed and ruined, and they will not serve any benefit or value for the people of God. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 9, 17. Matthew chapter 9, verse 17. He says, Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. These two cannot be mixed together. If you do, 
you destroy the new wine and you destroy the old wineskins. You cannot mix the new wine of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It cannot be accommodated. It cannot be constrained by the old wineskins of the old covenant of the priesthood of Levi and of Aaron and the law of Moses. We have to understand the role, the purpose of the Levitical priesthood and of the law of Moses, and we must understand it in relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you can't mix and mingle these things together. Otherwise, you destroy the purpose of the old and you destroy the purpose of the new. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12. We remember in our passage here, He says, when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. It is of necessity. It is not a preference. It is not an opinion. It is not an option that you change the law. It is of necessity. When there is a change of priesthood, then of necessity, he says, there must be a change of law. And this change is for our advantage. Is it better to have Levi serving as your high priest or Jesus serving as your high priest? There's no comparison. Is it better to be under the law of Moses or under the gospel of Christ? It is no comparison. It is to our advantage. Notice in chapter 7, verse 18, he states, On the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment. Here, the former commandment is the same as what he says in verse 19. Notice in verse 19, he says, the law made nothing perfect. The former commandment and the law, these two things are being used interchangeably. He's speaking of the old covenant, the law of Moses, the covenant that was made with Israel at Sinai, right? That is what he's talking about. That is the former commandment that must be set aside. Galatians chapter three. Galatians three 10 to 12, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. Notice there it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. There, he's making this distinction between the law and the righteousness that comes by faith. Connected to the law is this covenant of works, that you must do the law in order to live by the law. But if you do not do the law, then you are under a curse, right? This is the way the law comes to us. And this is bound up in the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. Also, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, 21. Galatians 4, 21. He makes this contrast between Sinai and the heavenly Jerusalem. One being in slavery, the other one being free. 421. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these two women are two covenants. 
one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But their Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. There, there is Sinai that bears slavery, children of slavery. These are two covenants, he says. The one is the old covenant. The other is the new covenant. And the old covenant must be set aside so that the bringing in of the new covenant is established. That is what he means by former commandment. It is the law. The law is the righteousness that is based upon works of the law. The old covenant was a covenant based upon the performance of man, which resulted in death and condemnation. This is why in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 to 10, the apostle refers to the law, to the covenant of of Sinai. He refers to it as a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. In Romans chapter 10, verse 5, it says there that Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment should live by them. Moses writes about this righteousness that comes through the law. And the righteousness that comes through the law, what does it require from man? We must obey it, right? We must do it. We must keep it. And we will live by it if we keep it. The law as a commandment by which men establish righteousness based upon their works, based upon their efforts, based upon their obedience, is in opposition to the gospel, which is a word of promise based upon the righteousness of Christ that is received by the grace of God through faith and not through works. This former commandment then must be set aside. This law of works must be abolished, it must be set aside in order to make way for the promise for the coming of the Christ. Now, this law refers to, I think, two things. First, the moral law as a covenant of works. The two great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor as self, further defined in the Ten Commandments, right? This is a law, this is a moral code that is laid out, that shows us the standard of righteousness that we must keep in order to obtain life by our obedience, through our efforts, through our righteousness. And connected to that moral code is the stipulation. And the stipulation is, do this and live. If we want life, if we want salvation, if we want righteousness according to the law then we must love God and we must love our neighbor. We must keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. And if we do such, then we shall live. But also, that same law tells us, Cursed is every man who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. It offers blessings on the condition of obedience, and it offers a curse on the condition of disobedience. And no one of Adam's race in the fallen state, no one can live, no one can be declared righteous, no one will draw near to God by works of the law. Because it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Can anyone be justified or declared righteous in the sight of God by keeping the law, 
through their obedience and through their works. And the apostle says, no, no one will ever be able to do so. So first, this former commandment refers to the moral code and the connection of that moral code with blessings for obedience and curses with disobedience. And this is what is required of all men. In our natural state, we are born under this covenant of works that demands and expects perfect obedience from us, that promises the blessing of life for those who keep it, and promises the curses of God for those who disobey it. And because of this, all men are under a curse, because no one keeps this law. Secondly, this former commandment must also refer to the ceremonies instituted under the Old Covenant. The Levitical priesthood is a part of the former commandment, right? The temple worship is a part of the former commandment. The animal sacrifices and everything that took place in the temple, these are a part of the former commandment. These ceremonies are shadows and types, but they are not the substance. They can never by the continual offering of these things, by the continual service and ministry that took place at the temple, they were never able to perfect the people. They were never able to atone for sin, and those things cannot be the basis by which men draw near to God. They are shadows and types, but they are not the substance. No one can be made righteous. No one can draw near to God through these things. These ceremonies cannot be the basis or the source by which a man's sins are forgiven and by which he is made righteous in the sight of God and has access to him. These things cannot take away sin or establish righteousness in men. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 4. It says, For the law... Since it only has a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had any consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Those ceremonies must be set aside when the substance is revealed. When the substance comes, then there's no need for these symbols, for these shadows, for these types to prefigure these things in this dark, obscure way. When the substance and reality comes, those things need to be set aside. So the commandment that he's speaking of here, the law, refers then to this entirety of the Old Covenant. The law of Moses as a moral code It demands perfect righteousness, and it holds a record of debt against us. And so long as man is relating to God on the basis of the law, then he is condemned. For he cannot produce through his own works the righteousness that the law requires, and he can never pay the debt of justice he owes because of his many transgressions. And then the ceremonies instituted under the old covenant for atonement. All they could do was purify the flesh. All they could do was provide some symbolic cleansing, a ritual or ceremonial atoning, but they could never produce an actual spiritual atonement. The ceremonies of the Old Covenant could not take away the sins of the people. They could not purify the consciences of the worshipers, 
Because in these ceremonies, there is always a constant reminder of what? Of the reality of sin. They always remind them of their sins. So instead of purifying their conscience, instead of uh, clearing those things, all they do is stir up by way of reminder the reality of their sin and that these things are ineffectual to actually remove the sin of the people. The The ceremonies of the Old Covenant, they can represent, they can symbolize atonement, but they cannot accomplish it. Something greater is needed. So this is the commandment or law that he is referring to. Also notice here, he calls it a former commandment. A former commandment because chronologically speaking, in terms of redemptive history, the law of Moses was instituted before the coming of the Christ into the world. The law of Moses was put in place and held authority over Israel until the promised seed, the Messiah, was to be revealed. And this was according to the wisdom and counsel of God. God could have sent the promised seed immediately into the world after the fall of man. He could have given to Eve a miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. He could have sent the promised seed during the days of Noah. He could have sent him during the days of Abraham, Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel. Any of them could have conceived by the Holy Spirit and brought forth the Messiah into the world during their generation. And he could have died on the cross for sin at that time. But in God's infinite, perfect wisdom, he determined to set forth a promise of redemption through the Christ. He gave this initial promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Then he confirmed this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22. And then God determined to raise up from Abraham a nation, to bring this nation into the world, to make them a distinct separate nation from all the Gentile and all the pagan nations in the world, and that he would bring the promised Christ into the world through this people. And from the formation of that nation state, from Moses until the appearing of the Christ, God determined to govern this people under a former commandment, to place them under a guardianship under a stewardship of the law until the revealing of the Christ, according to the wisdom of God. This is how God chose to glorify himself and to bring the Christ into the world so that it would be sufficiently clear who he was and what it is that he was doing. This is the former commandment that he is referring to here. God chose to rule Israel under the law to govern their worship under the rules and guidelines established in the law of Moses. And this took place before the revealing of the Christ, before his incarnation, before his life, before his death, before his resurrection, before the ascension of the Christ and his sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Instead of doing those things first, he put the law in place first, the former commandment, and then brought his son into the world. And when that took place, that pivotal moment in redemptive history, there would be a change of law. There would be a change in the way that we draw near to God in the way that we worship God. The former covenant would give way to a better hope. Next notice in chapter 7, 18. This former commandment is said to be set aside. On the one hand, there is the setting aside of the former commandment. 
which is very important for us to understand. What does he mean by this, right? What does he mean that the law is set aside or that the law is abrogated or the law is abolished, right? It is said in different ways depending on which translation you use. Well, a few things. First, the setting aside of the law cannot mean that the law is evil. We must be very, very clear. Though the law needs to go away and though it needs to be abolished and it needs to be set aside, this is not because the law is in and of itself evil, defective, or that there's something wrong with the law and with the lawgiver. The law is holy and righteous and good. Romans chapter 7. And sometimes when you hear people speak of the law of Moses, they come very close to demeaning it as if there's something evil about it. But this cannot be the case. Because who is the one who gave the law of Moses? Who did it originate with? It originated with God. So we have to understand what that means. Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And the commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death to me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Here, he describes the law as holy, as righteous, as good, as spiritual. And this must be the case because the law did not come from Moses. It came from Moses in that he was the mediator who brought these things in, but the law came from the Lord. The law came from God. Therefore, because God is holy, righteous, and good, and spiritual, the law also that proceeds from God must be holy, righteous, good, and spiritual. It cannot be mixed with any evil. So the law is not evil. Secondly, when he says there is the setting aside of the formal commandment, he cannot mean that the Christian has no use for the Old Testament, no use for the first five books of the Bible, no use for the law of Moses. Otherwise, we could just cut the Old Testament out of our Bibles. It'd be easier to carry around. It'd be much lighter because it'd be 80% of it would be gone, right? We don't believe that, right? There are those, though, who have taught throughout church history that there's no need or we derive no benefit or value from the law or from the Old Testament or for the first five books of the Bible, And we cannot believe this and teach this as Christians. In Romans chapter 3, verse 31, he says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? On the contrary, we uphold the law, he says. And in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So these two concepts, these two beliefs, we must hold together in regards to the law. First, we must believe and confess that the law is holy, righteous, good, and spiritual. This is what the Bible tells us 
about the law of Moses. Secondly, we must believe that the law is weak and it is useless. This is what we will see in Hebrews chapter 7, because the law cannot make anyone perfect. We must believe these two things, because both of these concepts are clearly taught in the Bible. And there's no contradiction between affirming that the law is holy, righteous, good, and spiritual, and that the law is weak and useless in terms of perfecting or making sinners righteous in the sight of God, because it cannot accomplish these things. Here in our passage, the focus is on the setting aside of the law. Why this must happen because of its weakness. Why it must happen because of the uselessness of the law. What does it mean for the law to be set aside? Well, we must understand that the law is a covenant of works. And as a covenant of works, it reveals a standard of righteousness that we must conform to perfectly. The law rewards with life those who perfectly obey its precepts. When it says, do this and live. The law also punishes with death those who do not perfectly obey its precepts. When it says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Under the law, men are obligated. They are required to live a perfectly righteous life without any hint of sin. The heart, the thoughts, the mind, the will, the words, the deeds, every aspect of a man's being must conform perfectly to the righteousness prescribed in the law from his birth until his death in order for him to obtain life from the law. And if there is even one hint of sin, even one transgression of the law, whether it be in mind, in thought, right, in his words, in his deeds, in his heart, then it will result in condemnation condemnation, judgment, and death. The law prescribes a righteousness that is unobtainable by sinful men. So under the law, under this thing, men only receive death and condemnation. This is why it is referred to as a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation, not because of a defect in the law. Where does the defect lie? It lies in men. Men who receive the law are in their flesh, therefore they cannot keep it. But this is the original covenant that God made with Adam. And so long as we remain in Adam, we are obligated and we are bound to obey this covenant, to keep its requirements for our redemption, for our salvation, for our eternal life. And no one is able to do such things. The result of being under the law is only death and condemnation. Because though it is holy, righteous, and good, it does not come to men who are holy, righteous, and good. It is not given to spiritual men, but rather to men who are in the flesh, men who are dead in their trespasses and sins. The law is weakened by the flesh so that it never communicates blessing and life upon sinful men, but only curses and death and condemnation. The law must be set aside. In that, Christ must accomplish this law for us. And this is what the Bible teaches us, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. These requirements that are still upon us, according to the covenant of works, Christ has to fulfill that covenant on our behalf. It cannot just be thrown out of the way. 
It cannot, God can't just say, we're just going to scrap it and we're going to start over. He has put it in place and we are bound under this covenant so long as we remain in Adam and we are expected and required to keep this covenant. It must come to an end. It must be fulfilled in us. It is obvious that it cannot be fulfilled in us through our own efforts and through our own obedience. So who must it be fulfilled in? Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus Christ does not come to destroy the law. He comes to fulfill it. He accomplishes in his life and in his death the righteous requirements of the law, both in relationship to its righteousness and in relationship to its punishments. It says, do this and live. And do this and live was fulfilled or accomplished. It was brought to an end by the perfect life of Jesus Christ. He never sinned one time. He never violated or transgressed the law of God. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. This also was fulfilled by Jesus Christ when he suffered and died on the cross. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Whatever the law required, both in terms of its righteousness... It has been fulfilled in Christ. And whatever the law required in terms of its penalty has been fulfilled in Christ. All of it has been accomplished in him so that this covenant has been fulfilled on behalf of us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in that way, it has been brought to its end, its conclusion. It no longer has authority over the people of God, of those who are in the faith. Because they are not under the law, now they are under the promise. The law has been fulfilled by their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it no longer has dominion or authority or power over them. It cannot condemn them anymore because it has been fulfilled. Every single aspect of it. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Romans 8 verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God said, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirement of the law. God does not just say, I don't require this anymore. It's still required of us, but how is it fulfilled? How is it accomplished and brought to its end? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. He did what the flesh could not do. What we could not have under the law because of the flesh, the weakness of the flesh, God did by sending his own son into the world that we might have life in him. And in this way, the law is set aside. Not in the sense of rejecting it or destroying it or calling it evil or making it void. On the contrary, he says, we establish the law in Romans 3.31. We declare how the law has been fulfilled. We declare how it has been accomplished and brought to its proper end in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We teach men how they can have the righteousness described in the law. 
how they can have the penalty of the law paid, not through their own works of righteousness, but through the righteousness of Christ, by grace, through faith in Him. It is the righteousness that is based upon faith. And it says in Galatians 4, verse 4 to 5, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. The law was set aside by the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. His fulfilling of the law has taken away its power, its authority over us. And this is why in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, he speaks there of a marriage, of a woman being bound by her husband while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from that covenant. She's no longer obligated to her husband, but now she's free to belong to another. And in the same way, we were bound to the covenant of works. And as long as we remain in that covenant, as long as we live on covenant, we are bound to its rules, bound to its stipulations. But now we've been set free from that covenant. And how are we set free? Because we've died. And how have we died? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we are free to belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, so that we might bear fruit for God. The precepts of the law have been fulfilled in Christ. This is why Jesus, when John the Baptist sought to deter him from letting him baptize him, what did Jesus tell him? It was necessary for the fulfilling of what? For the fulfilling of all righteousness. It was necessary that it may be fulfilled. In Colossians 2.14, in terms of the penalty of the law, what does it say there about the record of debt that is held against us? Where has that record been nailed? It's been nailed to the tree. It's been nailed to the cross, showing that the record of debt that we owe has been paid on our behalf. And then the shadows and types, according to Colossians 2.17, they've been fulfilled because the substance has now arrived in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in these ways, all of these things associated with the law have been set aside. They've been fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is where our hope should be. Our hope should be found and it should be resting only in Christ because only he can make us perfect and only he can serve as the basis by which we draw near to God. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord, you have come and you have perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. Lord, you have kept all of its righteous requirements. Lord, you have paid the penalty that it owed. Lord, that we owed because of our many transgressions and sins. And Lord, we confess and believe and know now that the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we have confidence to draw near to you through him. So Lord, may we increase in this. Lord, may you give us an even greater assurance and a greater hope Lord, knowing that because of our flesh that remains and because of our own weaknesses and our doubts and trepidations, Lord, this confidence, Lord, this boldness that we have, Lord, it waxes and wanes to our own weakness. But Lord, not according to the substance and the basis and reality upon which it is founded. And so, Lord, may we always ever be looking at our Lord Jesus Christ. May our eyes be fixed upon him, seated at your right hand, who is there interceding on our behalf. And Lord, we offer to you praise through his glorious and through his holy name.
Father, be with us now as we go from here today. Lord, we do ask that you give us safety as we travel home. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.